Turn your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 24. I want to begin reading in verse 13. We've already studied verses 13 through 27. I'm sorry, 13 through 37. And But we're going to press on a little bit farther, but I want to go back and uh, look at several aspects of the passages before us. And so we're going to begin reading Luke 12 or 24, verse 13, and uh, just to give us some review and then pressing on a little bit farther. God's Word says, Now behold, Two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were who went with certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken." Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broken, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the the Scriptures to us? So they arose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? 
So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That part that I have in this process of God's Word at work in people's lives um, is not the most important. It is not the most potent. It is one element. This morning we want to consider another element. And we're going to look at it historically. We are going to look at it in our passage Historically, the passage, I should say, going back into the Old Testament, we're going to look at it at the passage before us here in Luke 24. We're going to look at its impact upon the future, our future. For there's a working of God in the passage here that we really didn't reference last week, but I told you I would get to it. I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks from now, but it's going to be this week since Brother French could not be here this Sunday to share, and I was going to give him some time this morning to share his ministry and then give a report together and then finish it up tonight, but you're stuck with me tonight. So we want to delve into this. There's some theology here that I do not claim to fully comprehend, and nor am I fully prepared maybe for all of its ramifications but I do know what I believe. I do know what the Scriptures say. And uh, bringing those two things into conformity is our work whenever we come to God's Word. Is to bring our beliefs into conformity with what it says. Sometimes that creates paradoxes in our heart or in our mind that uh, are difficult and at least challenging to resolve, and yet this is where we understand that God's ways are higher than ours, and that He has led us into His truth, yet that does not necessarily mean that we are capable of fully comprehending it. So we're going to walk in a difficult place this morning, um, and that may bring forth more questions in your mind than answers. But I want us to be challenged today that uh, God is at work in the hearts of men. And yet, we are responsible to respond to that work. And this is what we want to look at as we consider one aspect of the events around the road to Emmaus and the meeting of Christ with his disciples. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word before us. And our prayer and desire is to know it better. We need your help. You have promised by your Spirit to lead us into all truth, to illuminate us, to turn the light on for us. And we pray for that to occur today. You might guard this time from error. 
from the opinions of men, from the philosophies of this world. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you better. And not just to satisfy human curiosity, but Lord, we want to love you more and serve you better. And we are convinced that that comes from a knowledge, a greater and deeper knowledge of you. Help us through your word to do so by your spirit in this hour. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. We come to a passage of scripture where we find men who have encountered and been in the presence of Christ in his company for up to three years who have gone through one of the most traumatic and dramatic letdowns maybe known to man as their expectations were dashed. Even though they had fair warning, they ignored it. None of us ever do that, though, do we? Because they wanted to lift their expectations above reality and above even the very words of Christ and above all the Scriptures taught and their knowledge of that, and they wanted something. The redemption of Israel, which meant for them a national uh, resurrection, if you will, of the country and the nation of Israel with Jesus as their king, reigning and ruling in Jerusalem. Of course, God had a much bigger plan. And let me just share with you at the onset, God always has a much bigger plan than you and I have. And so let's not get too disappointed if things don't quite go the way we wanted because they're going the way and can go the way God wants. We find that among these men, we are we found them failure. We found failure all along the way where they didn't listen, where they were uh, thinking and operating on the physical realm and not in the spiritual realm that they were uh, confused often, that they misread things, that we didn't see the heart of God in them or they wanted to just destroy a whole city because they didn't want to hear Jesus speak. We've seen this kind of uh, failure among them. And we're not too critical and too harsh because we see it in ourselves as well. And we come, though, to this point and we're scratching our heads and going, certainly, surely... um, to see a light in the midst of the darkness, you're going to respond to it. And yet they had so convinced themselves over these three days of, of error that we find them refusing to believe even their very eyes. Um, but there's another aspect at work here that we want to discuss. And that is that at Jesus Christ's resurrection, first of all, there would have been some physical change about him. Some would contend that he already has the appearance that he will have in Revelation, which is that he is white. That doesn't mean that he is an Anglo. Um, That's not what I mean. I mean that he is like Moses as he has come down from the mountain. That he is now white-haired and shining. That he could easily be confused with an angel at times even, or a spiritual being, or a ghost, as we might imagine a ghost to be. And certainly that aspect could somewhat alter his appearance to them in that they were not expecting to see one look like that. But that's not exactly what God's Word says. 
but they just didn't recognize him because of his altered appearance. But rather, we come to Luke chapter 24, verse 16, and we have a declaration that they were the passive recipients of a work. And that work was that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And that is that this is something done to them. And the question is, what is restraining their eyes? That is, why didn't they recognize Christ as he walked up right beside them and walked with them over these miles to Emmaus? Why didn't they realize who they were? Why didn't they recognize his appearance, his eyes, his his voice, his manners, mannerisms? Why, Why couldn't they recognize him? Some have contended that their eyes were restrained by their unbelief. And I would contend, rather, that God restrained their eyes due to their unbelief. That He restrained their eyes as a test to see their response and to have this conversation with them. That they who walking with the Son of Man, who they have walked with for up to three years, could not recognize Him. Indeed, earlier that day, as Jesus met with one in the garden, it wasn't until he called her by name that she recognized him. Again, that evidence that that there was some altered appearance there, but there's something more at work as well. This is further evidenced by us in the text where once they did understand who he was, once the the lights went on and they and then Christ is breaking the bread with them, he's gone. And we find that God had a, a mysterious work he wanted to do with these two individuals as a means of confirming his resurrection for his disciples, including for you and for I. We then read farther into the text and we found... In verse 45, that Christ, by His own act, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. That does not mean that they couldn't understand the words, for in fact, the two men on the road to Emmaus, it says that our hearts burn within us as He shared with us the Moses and the prophets, and Jesus adds the Psalms here as well. And and so it was the capacity of man to understand what the words mean and what the, what the message is. And so we come to this idea of understanding it uh, a little bit differently, that Christ Jesus opened them to it to grasp what it was all about. The depth and the breadth and the height of it all. Not just the meaning of the words, as though somehow they didn't get what the, what, if we just flip back to a psalm, um, that they didn't understand uh, do not fret because of evildoers. Well, I think they understood what the words meant. They were not illiterate or, nor ignorant, um, and their vocabulary was not limited. It was not that that God comes in and, and does this work in their mind, but rather He opens up their spiritual understanding that they take these words that are written on paper, that are then written on their hearts, and they can understand the spiritual significance of it and the application of it into their own life and circumstances. And now suddenly, the law and the prophets and the Psalms have import to me. 
they are not just words and, and lessons. They are now something precious and valuable and are doing a spiritual work in me. And this, I believe, is what is being described as having our understanding opened. That it is Christ doing a particular work in them that they might grasp the Scriptures. Not just know them, but to grasp them. To, as the Old Testament and the New Testament prophets, uh, both Ezekiel and John, that they might ingest them. That they might have the Word of God, not just around them, but in them. And this is a particular work of God on our behalf. This is one of his, part of His grace towards us that we are not deserving of this, and yet we depend upon it immensely, upon that working of illumination of the Holy Spirit as we come to God's Word. And that's why whenever we open the Scriptures, uh, our heart needs to be an attitude of prayer. We need to be submitted to God. We need to be coming to it with the right heart and under the right leadership. Not the leadership of me or of some other man or person or the author of some book, but under the leadership of God Himself, Holy Spirit. But what does it mean when God says that He's prevented them, restrained them from knowing Him? And the question comes forward, um, is God actively doing this on a regular basis? That is, from a day-to-day basis, is God restraining men from knowing Him? from understanding or from recognizing His work. And my contention is is that the reason the Scripture points this out on the occasions when God is recorded to do so is because it is not His normative practice. It is His particular work in certain circumstances to come in and do what in the Old Testament is described as the hardening of hearts And you know exactly where I'm talking. You're talking about Pharaoh and several other instances where God hardened their heart um, that they, even though confronted with overwhelming evidence of the power and working of God, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one represented by Aaron and Moses there in His presence, that with overwhelming evidence, He refuses to grasp who He's dealing with. And by grasping, I mean, he doesn't, it's not that he fails to know what's happening in his country. It's not that he fails to recognize the words that this is about your God versus my gods. Um, It's not any of that. It's about internalizing it. And God says, in that instance, he comes in and he hardened Pharaoh's heart against what he was experiencing. And so I believe we have something somewhat similar, not to the depth of Pharaoh, here in our text where the eyes of these two men were prevented from recognizing Christ, that he might have this anonymous interaction with them. To give them an evaluation, a test, a trial, if you will, of whether they believe the Scriptures. 
and whether they believe the report and the messages and the witnesses of the events of that day. As Christ comes into their midst, we find certainly a lot of emotions going on. But on the road to Emmaus, that wasn't the case. You can make that case later on when he arrives in the room and then the doors are locked and suddenly Christ is there saying, Peace to you. And, you know, isn't that a great way to enter a room stealthily? You walk in a room, no one's there. Peace to you! Ah! Everybody through the roof. There's a lot of emotions there. And we might be able to make a case for some kind of emotive reason why they didn't recognize Christ or why they wouldn't believe in Him in that instance. But on the road to Emmaus, we have no such thing. This was just some guy joining them on a walk. We are told in Scriptures that we are to entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels unawares. And the reference there is to Abram when he was visited by pre-incarnate Christ and a couple of messengers, angels. Um, And so these men did not have any emotive experience here with Christ on the road to Emmaus that somehow would, would have blocked their sight, but rather it was a work of God particularly that He might engage them without all the emotive clutter of whether he's a ghost or whether he's real or any of that, but rather just as another man on the road. How are you walking? And so he closed their eyes. Of course, there's going to be another one that God's going to close his eyes as a picture or as a symbol of his unbelief, of a picture of his spiritual blindness, and that was a guy named Saul. Saul of Tarsus, and uh, Saul is heading on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he is blinded by Christ as a picture of his spiritual blindness. And it's not until that confession is made and and he enters into Damascus and and here hears the gospel from a man of God that he receives the Spirit and his sight returns. But of note for us is that these are unusual circumstances that God notes for us. That is, God is not in the regular act of hardening hearts against His gospel. He is not offering up empty offers of coming to know Him knowing that all the while He has shut their eyes to it. That has not occurred. And the proof of it, the ultimate evidence of it, is our future. For in Thessalonians, we find this simple statement that a time will come. Let's turn there. This one's worth turning there. I have kind of cut out some of my passages that we should be looking at for time's sake. Although you guys have been really good. This is the second week in a row I've gone to almost 1 o'clock and you're still here. So, <laughs> maybe by next Sunday we'll get that clock changed. So, we come to this instruction in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
verse 11, that a time in the future will come that God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That there is a day coming when God will, He will exert His power in the hearts and minds of men that they cannot, and I use that word very carefully, that they can't, they will not have the ability to believe. Why? Why would God remove from man the capacity to believe the truth? Particularly when we look at the events that this is describing of the end times when Christ has come and there's been these huge cataclysmic events on the earth and they are obvious of divine origin and that, they, the, that men have seen the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens and have run to the caves and want to hide. Why at all times when God is particularly and especially at work, His hand is on the earth, does He blind men from being able to believe, able to believe the truth? They can't, even if they wanted to. Why? Well, the previous verse tells us why. Because the verse 11 starts, and for this reason God will do this. Well, what is the reason? The end of verse 10 says, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What a contrast. And this contrast is exactly the point. That today, in this age, men are responsible for receiving the truth and loving it. That is, that they have the capacity to grasp it. They have the capacity to understand its truth. They have the capacity to choose whether or not they will surrender themselves to it or not. And those that would teach that, that the world is, is, has zero capability in this area do damage because then it becomes God's responsibility that none believe. Or for each that don't believe. Rather, the Bible says that men are responsible because they're capable. Because in this age of grace, not just grace for those who receive salvation, but grace for all men, that they are today given opportunity to respond to a gospel. Knowing what it is that is true and what it is that is a lie, they would rather believe the lie. A day will come where they must believe the lie. That is not this day. This day, men choose to believe a lie or to believe the truth. God will, has, by His uh, powerful working, given man that capacity to choose and has stepped away, if you will, in the controlling of men's hearts and minds that they might ex hear the Word and choose whether to receive it or not. That to call upon Him requires them to hear it. How can they hear it if there not been somebody preaching to them? And how will preachers go if none are sent? If we all stay in church and keep the gospel to ourselves, it's shame on us. It's not, well, God just didn't want them to hear. God has already declared His desire. 
his desire that he declares right here in Luke is that all hear. Why? Because today is the day of grace. When all can hear. I would contend that no matter what you preached to Pharaoh back there in Moses' day, he could not believe. We could go back even farther than that. And we can go back into the days of Noah when God says, No more will my spirit contend with men. What does that mean? I'm not going to try to convict them anymore. I'm done. I've selected my man. And while he's building this boat, none but him and his will I work with. What a frightening time to live. That kind of a time is coming. A time when it doesn't matter how much truth you think you know, you won't believe it. You'll believe lies, silly lies, ridiculous lies. Because you won't have any choice. Because you lost the privilege. But we live in a day right now. From that day when Christ said, Go and make disciples of all nations, He declared His will was that all should repent and none should come to wrath. And He opened the doors of faith to all men. And I would contend from Second Thessalonians and from the rare occasions where we find God preventing men from coming to Him, preventing it and closing their eyes and blinding them, that the, the rarity of that event shows the general rule that God operates under. And that is, if you will, you can come. You have the capacity in you to believe. It is not your capacity that you created in you. It is a capacity God has granted you. We don't glory in the capacity to believe. It's not an exercise. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that, that we um, can generate. It is something that we can direct. And something we can destroy. But it's not something we can make. For it is something that God by His grace has given to all men. And so on those rare occasions where it describes and it goes out of its way to tell us that God came in and intervened so that men could not recognize someone they had been with for over three years because God restrained their eyes. In fact, in this passage in Second Thessalonians, we have the same word restraint used there, but regarding a person. Used as a noun. The restrainer. And I want to develop this a little bit with you. I don't have the time to do it extensively where I really want to. Um, but we talk about um, the restrainer. And uh, this is also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, and let, let me just read the text for us so we can get a handle on it. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Um, and in these la very, very last days, I want to just encourage you in that. 
either by spirit or by word or by letter, as it as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. It hasn't. Um, sorry, Brother Camping, you were wrong. Okay. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, which means that we will experience the falling away. It comes before our catching away. Something else comes before the day of Christ, and that is the man of sin is revealed. The idea that somehow no one will know who he is until after we're gone is contrary to what the Bible says. He will be revealed, the son of perdition. Who opposes and exalts himself of all that is called God and that is worshipped. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed and the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is in accordance with the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and all unrighteousness and deception. We find this restrainer and the question is, what is he restraining? What is it that he is holding back? What is it that he is keeping in check, if you will, during this precious day, today, right now? What is he doing? And it is a he, not a what. It's a very unusual construction, and we know that this is referring to Holy Spirit. How do we know? Because it's the exact same construction that Christ used in the book of John when referring to the Comforter. He uses male pronouns for a neuter noun. Now, it doesn't mean anything in English because we, we have a very sloppy language and we don't get it. But um, you don't use neuter pro, or male pronouns with neuter nouns. You use neuter pronouns, it. But Christ didn't call Numa, it. He called Numa, him. It's a very carefully presented formula. And it's used here. Restrainer is a neuter. But it's a him. He comes. That when he is taken away. And so we find this one who is here. And what is he doing? What is he restraining? He is not restraining men from knowing the truth. I will contend the opposite. He is restraining sin in men. That they might know the truth. Think about that. I, I, it, 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 it hit me. I was studying this in Haiti and it about poor Larry French. Had to hear about it for about three hours. <clears throat> he got the long version. You get the abbreviated thing here. Um, he is restraining sin in men. Not just the doing of sin out there to protect us. That's why most Christians read that. You know, he's keeping the lawless one at bay. He's keeping Satan out of the church. No. He is restraining sin in men's hearts. Just as he restrained the eyes of these men so they could not see and recognize Christ, just as he hardened Pharaoh's heart, just as he would not permit anyone really to come to know him right before the flood, we find him today doing it on the reverse. He is restraining something inside of sinful men. And I would contend that it is not just the exercise of sin that he's restraining, but it is the, the, the pervasiveness of sin within us that men's minds can 
That is, they have the capacity to know truth. To recognize it and to respond to it. And that this is exactly what Christ described when He says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Convict the world. All men at some point in their life have come to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I would contend that that is part of His restraining work. But the fact is, is as soon as God says, My Spirit will not strive with men, Men will grow worse and worse. Even when they were, even when the Spirit was striving with men, they did what was right in their own eyes. Can you imagine how bad it got those last few years when Manoah was finishing up that ark? When the Spirit of God wasn't striving against men's sin? Well, this time has come. We live in this day, in this age, where the restrainer is at work in men's lives, and I am convinced in all men's lives that they all are granted by God's grace not only the faith to believe, but the restraint of their own sin nature that they can believe if they choose. This is part of His general grace or universal grace to all men. But a day will come when He will leave. And on that day, no man will believe the truth. No man will be able to believe the truth. Even if you want to know it, you will not find it. And you will believe every silly lie that comes down Twitter. That day is coming soon. But it's not today. Not yet, anyway, today. And so we live in this wondrous age. Of unimaginable grace for all men. That we can know God's truth. And just as some of my family come home and, and they just see the excitement on these young girls' lives because they've never had what you have grown accustomed to having, in much the same way, we have grown so accustomed to the work of the Holy Spirit and guiding us into all truth that we haven't valued it anymore. It doesn't awe us. That He is at work today and this grace is here and it is at work all around us. It goes before us. It follows us in every witness situation that I can come up to the most hardened and nasty heart and say, God is at work in you restraining your sin that you might hear the truth and believe. And even further than that, He will convict you of it. That you should believe. What a wonderful day we live in. But it's a short day. It is at dusk of the age of grace. When this day closes, this era, these 2,000, some 2,000 or so, a little less than 2,000 years, of this wondrous work of God among men, all men, there will be an accounting. And if you are 
encountered with the number that didn't love the truth, did not receive the love of the truth, and are not saved. Oh, the horror that the rest of your existence will be. This is the day of the Spirit's working among men. Today He strives. He labors. Restrain sin and sinfulness. He works convicting. He moves to illuminate. He calls all men everywhere to repentance. He is not, my friends, blinding men today. In fact, quite the reverse. And so it will never be charged to God's account that any, any one do not believe. For He has given all the opportunity to believe. And He has done a tremendous work in this day that making all men capable of receiving His truth. And so we stand accountable before God for rejecting it if we do. And I would contend equally that we stand Accountable to God. If we do not share that truth in this special day, if we squander this opportunity, there is no other. There will be no other age. There will be no other opportunity. There is nothing I can find anywhere in Scripture that from the, from the rapture of the church, from the taking up, the catching up of the church until the very end, I see no hope for men. None. I say, oh, there's 144,000 sealed before the rapture. There is no hope for men. Oh, Israel comes to Jesus Christ at the, at, as king. Yes, they're not in the church. They're on the new earth. It's wonderful. It's exciting. This is the day. Don't squander it. Don't squander it through unbelief. And don't squander it by wasting opportunities to share Christ with others. This is the day. Where our eyes are not blinded. They are well opened. Our minds are not in shadow. They are in light. The Spirit is striving. He's in the fight. We need to be in it too. Or we'll end up many times like the disciples. Too terrified and frightened to believe. They didn't even believe when they were filled with joy and marveling. Brother, and I call you to believe. And I call you earnestly to trust God more and more. 
Because I know you are capable. Because God has made you such. And I know you have to answer for that capacity that by His grace He's given you. And I know the days are short. And even as Christ stood there, and I love how He blinded their eyes, but He still held them accountable for their sadness and for their unbelief. The two men were asked, what is wrong with you? The disciples were asked, what is wrong with you? Why don't you believe? You don't have to see me to believe. In fact, Thomas is told, blessed are those who not seeing yet believe. Why are we capable? Because God has made us so. But that capacity will not last forever. One day, the Spirit will stop striving. He'll stop convicting. He'll stop restraining. And men will be lost for good. Let us this day, in this age, as it closes, strive with the Spirit and not against Him. Let's pray.